Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for coming along. Um, so first things first, thanks to the ADI for inviting me along. I'll, uh, I'll try not to disappoint them or indeed uh, you over the next <laughs> half an hour or so. Um, and as Anna mentioned, I'm here to talk about how you can meaningfully involve the public in decision making. And by that, that I mean in the, in the realm or the sphere of, of governments and indeed in, in consultation. So very much ongoing decision making and all the complex decisions therein. Um, but before all that, and before we look into some kind of specific case studies and some interesting bits and bobs, of which there are quite a few, I thought it might be interesting to learn a little bit about, well, you, and indeed whether any of the people in this room, and for, for anyone watching online, there's a, there's a couple of hundred people here this afternoon, um, how many of you have actually heard of Delib? So, quick show of hands, who here has ever heard of Delib? Anyone at all, aside from the people organising it? <laughs> so, for anyone at home, that's about 1% of the audience, so... Yeah, I thought that was probably the case. So Delib is a, is a digital democracy company. Uh, we were founded in Bristol, which is England's greatest city, as I'm sure you're aware, all the way back in, uh, in 2001. Um, and what we do currently is produce uh, technology platforms that help large organisations actively encourage and support citizens to participate in their decision-making uh, processes. Um, we have staff, about 25 people, about 20 in Bristol. We've got a few in Australia and a few in New Zealand. And we operate primarily across these uh, territories, working with governments and publicly accountable bodies um, only. That's really our, our area of interest. Um, we, at the moment, we have three pieces of technology. I'll talk a bit about them, but that's not really why I'm here today. Uh, so we have a platform called Citizen Space, which some of you may have used, hopefully without knowing it. We have a simulation tool, which I'll, I'll talk a little bit about uh, uh, later on. And we also have a kind of a crowdsourcing tool as well, which has also been pretty widely used. And again, hopefully, if you have used the tool, you kind of didn't realise in terms of the kind of scale we're operating at, even though we're pretty, pretty small, frankly, we work with about 150 uh, organisations on an ongoing basis who subscribe to, to our services. And that's everyone from pretty much all of Whitehall to, I don't know, national agencies like, uh, like the Environment Agency through to devolved governments to the BBC. Pretty much uh, it's a who's who, if such a thing um, exists. But before we get into kind of current state, um, and as with all good things, you can't really understand the present without kind of understanding the past. So given that literally none of you have ever heard of us either, you probably haven't heard of where we've been and what we've been doing for not on 20, 20 years. So in the best tradition of revisionist history, it's probably easiest to say that Delib was founded in, in a fit of absent-mindedness in 2001. Um, and it, we, our roots are, are in political satire. And I think if you understand that and some of the stuff we've done ever since, it probably explains why I'm stood here today and, and the slightly weird way in which we, we operate our organisation. So in 2001, in the run-up to, uh, to the general election, Tony Blair's administration was just about to get re-elected, kind of on a landslide, pretty much regardless. I mean, apart from a few raised eyebrows about millennium projects, we hadn't had the Iraq war, we hadn't had all that stuff, the game was good. And so in times like that, it's, you know, if you can't beat them, then I think it's quite a British thing to instead satirise them. And that's exactly what the founders of Dilib did. And at the time, there were three first year, uh, final year, sorry, Bristol University students who took it upon themselves to create a website called spinon.co.uk. And it was full of kind of, you know, satirical content. But it was also full of, of games and a lot of kind of flash content, which really demonstrates his age, using the word flash, right? And a lot of it, kind of the key thing that really tied it together, apart from the broadest satirical sense, is, is humour, really. And I think that's something that we try to perpetuate. And so a couple of examples of stuff on there. One was MP in a blender, which is a, a very cathartic process whereby you could put a minister at a time in that blender and you could press the blendermatic buttons and that's literally all it did. I don't know if you call that satire or just, yeah, cathartic, but whatever. Uh, another game, uh, probably the most famous one, and the reason it kind of went viral and got a lot of attention, was a game called Get to the Right of Jack Straw. And no matter how long you played it, the, you couldn't win. It was an unwinnable game. And if anyone remembers the period, therein lies the uh, punchline. And so that got a lot of attention. The, the fans were interviewed by Jeremy Paxman for Newsnight in their kitchen, all that sort of stuff. And off the back of that, and especially in that kind of time where there was a lot of cash, there was that very lazy kind of joined-up thinking where they go, young people politics, the internet, here's some money. And so for the next five years or so, Dilib worked on things like um, online voting pilots, which is a big new Labour initiative in three core cities. Obviously, that didn't go very well. Um, we're not doing it now. 
We also worked on things like democracy games for schools, which pleasingly is actually shortened down to Dem Games, which still makes me happy, but anyway. Uh, and so those games were, or Dem Games, I should say, uh, included such classics as Council Quest, Council Quest 2, and Council Quest with a Vengeance, which never saw the light of day. And that went to every school in England and Wales. And actually, you can see how Jack Straw Flash Games is starting to turn into maybe this, but obviously with a slightly more uh, kind of serious point to it. Um, other bits and bobs we worked on, we got quite interested in things like crowdsourcing, um, also things like argument mapping. We did a lot of research with uh, the New Economics Foundation. There's a guy there called Perry Walker, who's still knocking around to this day. He's a very nice man. Anyway, uh, and uh, this is actually kind of a basic and quite a visual way uh, to crowdsource ideas. And at this time, you were literally pinning light bulbs on a tree. We did other ones with Macmillan Cancer where you were putting leaves on trees and so on and so forth. But really, what we did from 2001 to 2008-9 is just a number of repeated experiments. So we were kind of configured like an agency, albeit the, the most niche agency you've never heard of. And um, from 2005 to 2010 or so, we started to get a bit more serious and we'd learned some stuff. And so things, things that we'd learned were, really, there's only so many ways you can meaningfully consult the public online. Obviously, there's myriad ways, but actually, the ways that work in terms of they're commercially practical, government organisations are going to buy them off us, we can support and build them at a cost that they can pay for, all those sort of things. There's only a few key ways. So... One of those ways is, is good old-fashioned surveying, which, you know, even though it might sound dull and it's kind of derided, it simply is the best way to receive responses at scale. It's the most accessible, it's the quickest, it's easiest to analyse. So we believe that, and that's kind of built into to one of our products. Another key way to consult online is through kind of deliberative discursive exercises. And we worked a lot on, on crowdsourcing uh, projects um, to that end. And uh, from 2006 to 2009, we did a lot of work in, in the US, so with federal government through a partner organization there. The partner was largely there, so the Americans didn't know there was an English supplier involved. And actually, one of the reasons not many people know about some of that American work, despite the fact it was ages ago and despite the fact none of you have ever heard of us, is that it was all kind of white-labeled. White so we worked on things like uh, the Quadrennial Security Review with the uh, Department for Homeland Security, and that was a big kind of uh, crowdsourcing site to obviously uh, crowdsource policy ideas related to that. What was kind of interesting is actually a bit of precursor to Trump, because a lot of the ideas suggested were mental. So it was things like mine the borders, which, you know, it doesn't even seem like that uncontroversial now, does it? Maybe they will mine the borders or on building the wall, who knows? Um, so we worked on some of those, and that culminated with working on a lot of Barack Obama's early open government movements, and we produced sites like recovery.org, which was the big open gov site they used to crowdsource ideas to go into the Recovery Act, which was obviously Obama's big stimulus package. Um, so we did a lot of these kind of things, and that was all good, and people really liked us, and at the time, people had probably heard of us, right? But what we realised is that actually there's a core problem at the heart of all publicly accountable organisations, all of them, even the ones that express to be very open and to care and whatever, whatever kind of uh, way they might describe themselves. And that problem can probably best be resent, uh, represented by this phrase, beware of the leopard. So of the 200 people in the room, who here uh, knows what I'm talking about with this phrase? For everyone online, that's no one. Okay, good. There's all 200 people shaking their heads. Uh, so uh, beware of the leopard. Uh, comes from uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And I'd hope at least some of you have heard, of, have heard of that. And obviously that was a great book and a fairly good TV series and a truly dreadful film. But at the start, there's this interesting scene that plays out where the main character, Arthur Dent, um, is woken up by the noise of a bulldozer outside of his house. And this amusing conversation develops and ultimately quite a frustrating conversation as well. And he says to the, the guy from the council with the clipboard, that it's like, well, I didn't know anything about this. And he said, well, the plans have been on display. And he said, well, no one ever told me about it. And he's like, well, they're in the planning department. Anyone can go and view them. And as they get out, they realise what the planning department actually entails. And so it turns out the plans are on display in a locked filing cabinet in a basement whose stairs, stairs had gone with a sticker on it that says, beware of the leopard. And I think also the lights had gone. And that really is quite indicative and neatly summarises so many problems around ongoing decision-making in large organisations. There's unelected 
public officials, I don't want to say bureaucrats, which sounds a bit negative, but there's a numerous um, hundreds, thousands of unelected officials who are constantly making decisions on our behalf, who are going through the theatre of consulting us in these decisions. And those, those times are changing slowly, like all things, They're probably not fast enough. And so our approach to the Beware of the Leper problem is what I call tedious subversion, which if anyone turns into a stick or anything like that, I want, I want like trademark Ben or whatever. So, <laughs> so please don't rip it off. But say so, tedious subversion really links back to our roots and how we have founded satire, very much being the adjutant, being the people on the outside kind of banging to get in. But the problem with that is there's no real way to make meaningful change if you're always sat outside knocking on the door, or at least really you're only chipping away at the edge of the problem. So we realized a few things. One is that um, the way we were doing it, the style of technology we were producing, and the fact that it was all about project work, that kind of agency structure, it really wasn't addressing that core beware of the leopard issue. You know, Dave in licensing at Taunton Dean District Council, you know what I mean? He is very far removed from an ideas tree that maybe someone in the comms team had bought. And so really, we weren't addressing the cultural challenges. We weren't building capacity within the system. You know, we weren't really addressing the hard stuff. But what we had established is how you can go about involving people. And the really common thread with all the kind of stuff that we do has always been coming back to using deliberation as a positive methodology with which to consult people. Hence why I'm going to talk about deliberation. And say, so in 2010, we became grown-ups for the first time. Um, essentially, we bet the farm and we said, you know what, the world has changed in lots of different respects and what we're doing also isn't that effective. And so we got quite involved with thinking and, and uh, particularly so when we spent a lot of time in, uh, in the US uh, working on the OpenGov stuff, we met a guy called Tim O'Reilly and we also produced the world's worst film called OpenGov the Movie, which I think is still online. And it's about three pixels per screen. It's awful. But anyway, Tim O'Reilly's in there. And all this stuff, I'm sure plenty of you know it around, some of his thinking around government as a platform was something that we, we, we were really influenced by. And luckily, at the time, there was a group of people within central government, within Whitehall, who were also quite keen on the idea, particularly as a vehicle to improve consultation. And so in 2010, the, uh, what was actually, what was it, the COI, so Central Office of Information, was where these kind of functions were sat at the time, pre-GDS and all that stuff. Um, and somehow we managed to convince them that it was a good idea if they co-funded a platform for, for, for use across Whitehall. And so uh, we did about six months of user research with public officials, and we essentially wanted to find out their problems. And really, the second version of Delib, because kind of we pivoted, to use an utterly hateful phrase, in 2010, um, was, was thinking, actually, yeah, like, we think we instinctively know these problems. We know we found methodologies to consult people. And, and some of our suspicions were correct and some weren't. And so Citizen Space aims, and indeed to this day does, solve a lot of problems. And really, you could call it the plumbing. You know, this phrase, fix the plumbing, keeps coming up. That's kind of what we've been doing. And essentially, problems it aims to solve is the fact that, well, like, any platform, it's a common shared technology service or tool, whatever you want to use, and people get more familiar, and that improves quality over time. It's more standardized. You can adopt it slowly, but surely you realize a more open form of consultation is not going to lead to the world ending. Um, and then also you can build in tools like really good quality response analysis tools. Because the thing for us, and what Delib has always tried to do, and particularly these days, is work equally for the public and for the public officials. And not the organizations, because frankly, they're just full of people, right? And public officials largely are not like beware of the leopard chap, shall we say. Actually, I think organizational reflex is more beware of the leopard. And the individuals mostly are trying to, trying to change things, you know? And I think what we try and do is, is find those people and, and get them to help us out and ultimately scale this stuff. And it, it demonstrably is changing culture. So we don't think that you can do anything at all unless you really do the hard stuff. You get deep into the organizations. And really what we're doing is we're subverting them from the inside. And that is tedious subversion. You know, the man in you know, the planning deed with the bulldozer, he'll be in local government for the next 40 years. But luckily, so will we. And so it's just chipping away. You know, we're still going to be here. Different generations are coming through, more open-minded people are coming through, and it is changing. And 
If you're interested, I'm not, this is not a product pitch or anything, but the, um, for anyone who can or can't see it, we have an aggregator of all activity running across the platforms. If you want to have a shifter, you can. For anyone online who can't see it, you can just Google citizen space aggregator. The only thing it does is uh, yeah, collate activity running across the platform. So there's about 110 organizations there. A lot of stuff's kind of cool. Have a shift if you want to. And all this is kind of obviously some of our sites now. And really, this represents like a growing of age moment, shall we say. So anyway, that's probably quite enough about that sort of stuff. So the question and the reason I'm here to talk to you is how you meaningfully engage the public in complex decision making. And as I said, we've kind of tried to address the environment within which we sit and try and change that. And this is very much back to the methodological layer. That was the slowest way of pronouncing that word, wasn't it? That was actually correct, though, weirdly. <laughs> Strange. So, climate policy, quite tricky. Um, and all the stuff I'm going to talk about now are, are, yeah, by definition, complex problems. And as we know, there's lots of people within government who are, who are trying to change this stuff or improve it, or in, in the example I'm about to talk about, make sure we hit our carbon reduction um, targets. But the problem becomes, if you work for, or at the time, if you worked for DEC, because obviously that's been closed down now, thereby showing Tory commitment to the environment. And, but at the time, it was full of great climate change scientists. They you know, basically bought in the best people they could. Um, and we worked on uh, a project with them. I'm explaining this terribly, aren't I? But anyway, so we were approached by the Department for Energy and Climate Change and indeed their climate change scientists who developed a carbon calculator. And this carbon calculator was incredibly complicated and intelligent research. In fact, landmark, I believe, with the UK was the first nation to do it. And essentially, they wanted to consult the public because it's really important. It involves all of us. It's a genuine national issue. We all have agency. But the problem with that is... A database, which is what they had, so a pathways database, is not a very good way of consulting the public. I, I don't think I need to explain the reasons why you can't use a database with, like, my mum or whatever. Uh, but, yeah, so what we said to them was actually, hold on a second, there's a way of doing this. And probably the best way to do that is by using deliberation and specifically using a trade-off scenario. So, as I, I keep using this word deliberation, and, and if you hadn't realised, we're called delib for that reason... But actually, there's lots of different types of deliberation. And if you go looking for the academic definition, which I did last night, you'll get lost in a world of, of, of boring and not terribly useful tedium. Um, so some people describe, it turns out, deliberation as kind of an offline discursive exercise. And that's kind of it, but obviously quite structured. Uh, and then you're seeing things like um, citizens' assemblies are all the rage in Ireland and you know, even in the UK with, with people like Evolve. And, and that's great. And that's a type of deliberation, and clearly that's an offline type of deliberation. And you can do that kind of thing online. It's kind of what we promote with the crowdsourcing stuff. But really what we're getting here, what we're doing here, is using a trade-off-based simulation to create a deliberative exercise. And there's loads of different reasons why you do that. And I'm going to talk you through a few different kind of contexts, a few different projects, and, yeah, hopefully you'll get the idea. So with this one here, um, what I should say, this is pretty much the last piece of project work that Delib did. And some of the stuff I'm going to show you afterwards is since we've moved to more of like a product type approach. But hopefully you recognise some of the similarities from the project into the product work. So with this one here, by the way, a uh, show of hands from the hundreds of people here. Um, how many of you are aware of my 2050, which is what this is called? Anyone? Not a sausage, okay. Well, this has gone well. Um, so this, we launched this uh, late 2010. And what we did was we spent... An eternity, I say we, someone else, spent an eternity reading up about, about climate change and everything that works and going through this calculator and trying to get our heads around it so we could turn it into something kind of usable and simple and engaging and all that other good stuff, which nearly breaks several of our developers at the time. It's insanely complex. But what a pathways analysis actually does is it looks at the interrelationships of the supply and demand side of carbon generation or hopefully lack of carbon generation. So an example of a pathway would be one down here. Some people online might not be able to see it, but this slider represents transport fuel. So that's a demand side issue. Possibly could change to a, you know, a non-carbon source of that. There's manufacturing growth, home efficiency, heating fuel. So again, what you start to see with these slides as well is they're tangible, and that's really important for this kind of thing because complex problems are by definition intangible. So that's the starting point. On the left-hand side, where there's this grey block, was um, the supply side say biofuels, you know, nuclear energy, whatever. And each of these pathways has an interrelationship with the other one. So even with this fairly simplistic interpretation, you can see how many myriad combinations there are. 
And the way that it works, and indeed how all of our kind of deliberative trade-off technology works, is in a very fixed environment with fixed rules. So in order to create a trade-off, the first thing is there must be limiting factors. Otherwise, it's just sliders on the screen, right? You're not. Unless you enforce that trade-off, nothing's going to happen. People don't have to think, they don't have to deliberate, and so on. And so we do this with, in this case, the energy security indicator. So regardless, you might be able to select options that hit the carbon reduction target, but actually if they're not feasible, if they don't work in the real world, then what's the point in suggesting to the public they can, and what's the point of building it into this kind of technology? So that's one of the limiting factors. There was also about energy security, so making sure we're not getting too much from Russia, one assumes. And then the other kind of aspect of all these trade-offs is there has to be a way of keeping score. And linked to the way of keeping score, there needs to be a way to win. So there's a kind of a win condition. And so maybe you start to see how some of the stuff we did early on, some of the game stuff, some of the, all of that kind of thinking has kind of gone into how we approach deliberation like online. And this has a very visual interface. And as you move the sliders, the world would react in real time. So the coal-fired power station would disappear and the energy would get, uh, sorry, the energy? The atmosphere would get uh, nicer. When you did some home efficiency stuff, the massive L LCD, probably would have been at the time, right? LCD TV, uh, will, will go off and things like that. And so anyway, so that's the basics of it. And it is really, really difficult, this thing. Really difficult, which reflects the real world environment. And what we're doing is we're not pushing the complexity onto people. We're breaking it down in a way that's manageable so they can engage with it meaningfully. And the key thing for that, and this is where all our stuff has to work, is that all of the things we do, they are a genuine research exercise, and that reflects everything we do is as equally important for the public officials as for the public. And this deck at the time describes the most successful engagement project ever, which wasn't hard. I think they'd been around three years, but anyway. Uh, 25,000 people submitted one over the period of time, and I think the average time people spent was about 15, 20 minutes on this page which online is about, what, three weeks, a month? Certainly a camping holiday. So it's a really long time. And, and then you've got to, in terms of impact, so clearly the, key, the other kind of great thing around this kind of approach is that you are learning through the process of participation. You, you really are. And The Guardian weirdly got onto this about five years after it was no longer live, but still online. There's an article, you can Google it. And it was quite interesting learning what Guardian journalists learnt through the process. You'd expect they're vaguely intelligent, probably have an interest in this stuff. Maybe I'm wrong, I don't know. What's the quality of Guardian journalists like these days? Good? Okay. Probably have a Guardian journalist around then. Okay. Anyway, uh, I'm getting bogged down here. Uh, yeah, so you got 25,000 submissions, and then it was so successful. Uh, Cardiff University were commissioned by the government to make a uh, toolkit for schools. So it became, and indeed to this day, is part of the national curriculum for Key Stage 3. It's a great learning tool in isolation, even without the participation element. And it's also a version of this is now in so many countries, it's untrue. We stopped doing project work straight afterwards, so I pretty much had a part-time job saying no to people about these for a while. Everyone from the UN to the Colombian government to Taiwan, these are quite popular. So there's quite a few hackneyed rip-offs of these, and they're not as good as us. So anyway, hopefully that's a kind of in, an introduction to the to kind of ways you'd use this deliberative stuff. So the next bit I want to talk about is budgeting, and specifically budgeting within local government. So I don't mean to bring the, the, the mood down with that, with that sentence, but... As some of you may have noticed, there's been a period of austerity in the UK for the last eight years. And uh, a big part of that austerity is the cuts to, from central government to local government, as I'm sure most of the people watching this are aware. And um, I think it's fair to say that we've moved beyond cutting the fat and back office efficiencies and any other cliche you might dare to mention. And so the problem with budgeting, like climate, is man alive, is it complicated? Okay, so, you know... Um, if you're looking at, say, like a city like Bristol, the greatest city in the UK, a budget there might be, say, £300 million, which is obviously quite a lot of cash. Uh, and then at the moment, there's you know, huge levels of, um, of austerity being implemented year on year on year. Um, so that alone is quite a complex problem. It's quite an emotive problem. The key thing here is that the public clearly don't know enough about local government as a, as a whole, let alone how their budget cycle works, let alone how the budget consultation they're in works, and they certainly don't understand things like the interrelationship of budget areas, some of which, you know, specific budget areas alone could be very emotive. So I think the useful thing to talk about with budgeting, I'll talk about it with some of the other stuff, is actually if you're going to run a budget consultation, and bearing in mind local government has to do this every year, it's probably the most important thing they do every year, it's the thing that has the most impact on people's lives, 
And it's the hardest thing for people to meaningfully you know, be involved with that decision-making. So what's the alternative to a trade-off scenario? What would be the common ones these days? Surveys, probably. Like I said, I'm not, not down on surveys. They're, I think they're powerful in the right case. But if I were to ask any of the 200 people sat here today, would you prefer me to spend 10% more on potholes or 10% more on social care? You'd say, well, kind of both, right? So you don't understand the constraints, even if you're aware that there's austerity. If I were to ask you in a survey, do you want to close the library or do you want to close the children's centre? Again, you might not know that libraries, it turns out, are really bloody cheap. You know, and actually, these, these children's centres are actually kind of expensive, maybe, because you don't understand their relative size or, or indeed value. And then the final thing around this is that, aside from the fact that you can't really do this in a sort of a meaningful way otherwise, is it's become extremely political, as you'd expect. So probably one of the most politicised budgets, just budget in isolation, let alone a budget consultation, has been in, in Liverpool. Um, and we've done a few projects, not projects, sorry, we've done a few initiatives, whatever, with them, using the product, what you could call a productized version of My2050. So we have a simulation tool. And uh, this infographic here, I appreciate a lot of people won't read this and people online might not be able to see it. But uh, prior to the last round of consultation we did, which was last year, maybe the year before, they had saved 330 million quid from their budget over that parliamentary term and a half, which is, is quite a lot. And then they were going to need to save another 90 million in the upcoming term. So as I said, it's moved way beyond cutting fat. And um, in Liverpool, they have a directly elected mayor, Joe Anderson, He's, um, he's a very Labour mayor. Like, I should say we are like, politically neutral, but it, it is accurate to say that he is very Labour. And so, actually, it's interesting with budgeting how you can see how you can use the budget model itself to express political ideas while simultaneously running an involvement exercise, which is meaningful, and so on. So basically, it's great. We're one step away from making you breakfast at this point. So, with this one here, this is the updated version of what you might call my 2050s. Um, and uh, this one here is configured as a traditional budget model. I'm going to show you some other cool stuff in a sec using this technology. But, and um, what you might notice is some of the kind of the rules and the constraints, the progress, the way to win that we've seen from my 2050, just in a kind of more clean, modern way. The other thing is you couldn't really do my 2050 in the way we did it because mobile phones, frankly. Usually, I mean, how, how do you resize SimCity World, right? So that's kind of dictated some of the design. Um, so this one here, what you do at the start, you have your target. So with my 2050, we needed to get to 20% of 1990 levels of CO2 emission by 2050, which is just really easy to get, isn't it? With this one here, it's a bit simpler. So in the next uh, upcoming year, or the current financial year, they had this level of expense, so 556 million quids worth of, of uh, services to deliver. And uh, top left, the target is to reduce that by another 90 million. And you've already seen how much has been cut. And so as a result of that, this is what I call the everybody dies model. There are no good options, okay? It is bleak. And actually, the bleakness in that model is sort of the point in terms of the message that sits below it. And so the Jay, the mayor there, he wanted everyone to know. So it's based on sliders by here. Before we had kind of vertical, these are horizontal. And these are the various services. And down the left, you've got your main kind of groupings. And so here we can, uh, I don't know if everyone can see it, but they start on the right, they're set at 0% current state, and all you can do is cut services. We do quite a lot of these where you can maybe add 10% to a specific service, but you offset that elsewhere. This one is, do you want some people to die, lots of people to die, or everyone to die? Um, particularly with the adults and children section, which I left off. Um, and the way that it works is, as you move the slider in real time, the deficit in this case will, will fall. You see that represented in monetary and percentage terms. You've got a couple of ways of sort of engaging with that figure. But crucially, and this is the next part of any good, well-designed trade-off deliberative exercise, that's a bloody long sentence, isn't it, is that you get real-time consequences or impact statements for the decisions you make. So not only are we learning about that financial stuff and the interrelationship and the fact that libraries are bloody cheap and all that sort of stuff, what you're actually finding out is what that change in services mean. And it's really, really powerful and really, really uh, useful. And it's another kind of key way that we get good, well-informed responses. And an example of this, so some of the feedback you see and the kind of reports people produce and the stuff like, you know, you end up chatting to them about, is how the public respond to this. 
and it's fascinating. I mean, you can see it from, you know, the comments that receive supporting this and the reports they end up in. You can also see stuff on social media, which I'll show you in a sec. But what you see a lot of people doing is two things. One is they uh, shut all the libraries. It's a really common theme. And nearly every single person who shuts the library says, I would never shut a library in my life, but now I've done this, I realise like, it's better to keep vulnerable people alive rather than you know, keep a library open, that kind of thing, which is great because that really demonstrates that people have learnt through the process of participation. It means they've left their own selfish instincts behind. And if we go back to what would you do otherwise, say a survey, do you want to spend more on this or more on this? You say yes to these because you have no context, you don't know. So it demonstrably has an impact on, on citizens and people who engage with this stuff. So that's one big outcome. And my second favourite one, particularly with this, because, again, the context here was saying, well, actually, the other thing was there's council tax at the top. What you could do to make this more palatable is accept a massive council tax rise. So one could argue there's a message beneath that. But really, the main message is, isn't central government bad? Is kind of one. Or a less cynical way of saying that is, you know, look how little money we have. And so how do we know whether it's also worked in terms of that impact? How do we know how people have reacted? Well, when we launched this one, actually the first one, we've done a couple, there was somebody tweeted, and the entire tweet was a link to this simulator and the immortal words, we're fucked. And I don't think you can really kind of like better summarise like the kind of impact and the kind of, I suppose, empathy that you can also generate with these kind of deliberative processes. So there we go. There's budgeting. We all got through it. It wasn't as dull as you thought, right? Um, how are we doing time-wise, by the way? Good? Another 10 minutes? Okay, you lucky devils, another 10 minutes. Policing, okie doke. So, policing, another field which is actually really complicated. Not necessarily, you know, sort of on the beat and stuff. I'm guessing the police are pretty good at that by now. But actually, the long-term planning around policing. And we've been working on a project really recently with the Police Service of Northern Ireland, which closed about, uh, about a week ago. Um, and this is fascinating for a few other kind of reasons. So, it turns out either the Northern Irish police are magicians or something's going on in society. So, this is one of the stats from the, uh, from the exercise we've just finished with them. And over the last decade, you can see reported crime is down by a quite a large amount, but also so are officers, so are the staff, and so is the budget. So, really, one of those arrows looks like it's pointing in the wrong direction, right? How is it that you can spend less, have fewer people, and have less crime? And that reflects society in Northern Ireland, and it reflects the fact that it's no longer, I suppose, a war zone, right? And so it's a, it's in, it's a very unique moment when it comes to, to policing there, because effectively what they're needing to do, to use a hateful term for a second time, is pivot their entire police force. So it used to be the police were set up to deal with, with violent crime, with terrorism, with security, you know, all that sort of stuff. But actually, you know, slowly that, those troubles, which I always think is a bit of an innocuous way of describing it, but slowly those troubles have kind of ended. And kind of the tail end of those, I mean, it still kind of exists, as we know, but there's significantly less violent crime. And so what do you do when you have a police force that is geared up for, for one version of society? Well, you have to change it. And with any change process and with any decision-making process that large, then it's really important that the public are involved in that. And... and uh, uh, they're a fascinating organisation. If you look, they say things like, we encourage uh, accountability and scrutiny. Not even encourage. I can't remember the word they use, but no one says that. Like, people pretend they're accountable, right? But no one actually says, we seek it. Um, so anyway, so what they wanted to do, again, is involve the public in this, in this complex decision. And so um, there's a few kind of aspects of complexity here. So... Again, it's kind of, you know, policing in Northern Ireland is probably emotive with certain communities. I don't know, I don't live there, so I don't want to make too many kind of wild suggestions. But actually, how do you get the public to understand that society has changed, or I'm just shouting at them? And how do you get them to understand how you plan the police force and all its various services around that scenario? Well, one way you do it is, is the way they did it in parallel with the project I'm about to talk about. So the actual project that this was linked into was the Northern Ireland Policing Corporate Plan which doesn't get anyone out of bed in the morning, does it? And it is a document, and it is a very nice-looking document, but it's still the corporate plan. And generally, when you try and consult the public on the corporate plan, no one responds except for the seven people who are always going to respond, the 25 stakeholders, because they literally get paid to do it, and that's it, right? So again, it's all about alternatives when you think about using deliberative approaches. What would you do otherwise? 
And the reflex is always the print mindset. Let's make a document. Let's use the usual language. And then let's ask questions like, well, the questions aren't too bad. So I pulled these out of the corporate plan. And so question two, what aspects of policing in your local area are important to you? That's fine. That's all right. You don't have any context. You don't know. I don't quite know what you'd say. And then this section here is explaining the question. And I think that's probably an issue in and of itself. You know, it's long. It's not terribly accessible. I use the word ascertain about five in. So like, yeah, it's not. I mean, is it written for stakeholders? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe it's just a mindset. And then the question is being asked. Yeah, I, says, oh, God, I can't even bother to read this. But yeah, it's long. Next one. How do you think Pierce and I could improve policing in your area? Right. Okay, so most people, I would guess as well in this scenario, would say more police. Whereas, as we already know, there's fewer police and there's less crime. So, so if people suggested that, that's kind of a redundant piece of feedback and arguably a waste of their time as well. And the question explained, this is seeking to understand how you think policing area could be improved. Well, they've already said that, so that's a great... Anyway, it's not looking for specific incidents or personal information. So quite a lot of multi-syllabic words as well. Instead, it is seeking to blah, 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 blah. Anyway, it's not, it's not bad, and I do not mean to criticise. This is how the world runs, right? but there are better ways of doing it. So what we developed um, with uh, PSNI, and actually with, um, with, it's just officers who do this stuff as well. It's not like it's engagement specialists. And, and actually, as a slight aside, it's one of the best, uh, I suppose, accidental outcomes of moving to this product type thing is these projects are cheap as chips. I mean, we charge bugger all, frankly. We can deploy them in five days. We can have a two-hour chat with the world's best police officer. They can go away, and then you know, a little while later, they launch something like this. It gets 4,000 responses. It goes nuts. So productization is, is a win for so many different things. And actually, it kind of infuriates me. Oh, you're going to be a platform. I'm going for it. It kind of infuriates me, the short-termist economic funding model for what I would call digital democracy or democracy or dem tech or civic tech, particularly in our field. And it's part of the reason I wanted to, we, I've started talking in public a bit more, because the nature of subversion is you don't tell anyone, right? And we realize there's a point, actually, it's no longer helpful that no one knows what we do, because you get a lot of you know, re-repeating uh, work, um, rebuilding stuff that already exists. And we think the kind of problem is, is cultural and long-term, you know, beware of the leopard, um, primarily. And actually, technology is a vehicle for a change, but it's not the end game. And I think a lot of, a lot of funding, particularly, there's a, there's a democracy fund at the moment, the MHCLG, I think that's what they are now, isn't it? Have got out and like it's perfectly good. I think you can apply for 50 grand, stuff like that. And some of it does seem to be addressing the culture, but so much of it is just build another t technology tool, just build another one, just build another one, just build another one. And it's not bloody helping anything, frankly. And because they never get past iterate of version one, they're rudimentary, they don't have any user testing anyway. Whereas when you do something like this, because we've been building and, and iteratively developing these things for well, this one, what, eight years? It means you can deliver these things, as I said, cheaply, quickly, and with big impact. Right, I won't, I'll, I'll stop that. We'll be here all day. So, uh, with this one here. So the first one, it basically, what it's saying to you is, you're the budget director, we're buggered, how are we going to sort this out, right? What's the least worst options, particularly in the Liverpool Everybody Dies model? With the pivoting of a police force, actually, that's not useful, because long-term corporate planning, yeah, it's underpinned my money and resources and real-world constraints, like all complex, and indeed most decisions, but actually, this one here, when you're going out to the public, it's kind of flipping on its head, and it's saying, well, well what, do you, what do you value from your police um, within this process where I've learned enough to actually you know, understand what I value? And so if we don't want to use pounds and pence or dollars and cents, what we can do is instead replace those with points. And that is what this does. And so, you know. um, and so with this one here, I think you started with an arbitrary 100 points, you can give up to 10 points per sort of policing area. And actually, those 10 points, if you, turn, you went up to 10 on all of them, it's significantly larger than the 100 available. And so what you're doing is you're creating an artificial trade-off environment with all the good things, the constraints, the way to win, and everything else. And you're still getting the same outcomes around learning, but it's that abstraction. You're not getting bogged down in money. And as you move the sliders, what you'd find... There's a kind of a false uh, scenario in this whereby I think it's when you're either four or six, that's kind of current state, a bit like the last one. It's like, this is the current budget year, this is the next one. So if you go up to eight, you're allocating more, and they explains what that means in terms of policing. And, you know, obviously less than six is kind of you're taken away from it. And with all these, I pulled up this particular area, which I've selected from the left, because you can see the sort of terrorism parliament, uh, paramilitary stuff. It's actually only one item in a long list. 
And a big part of what they're changing is tackling things like cybercrime, which is obviously a kind of a new field. I hate the term cyber anything. It's lame, isn't it? Anyway, um, cybercrime and, um, uh, yeah, and uh, also a lot of vulnerable people are calling the police um, as well. So they're spending a lot more time dealing with kind of problems in society. Um, but yeah, uh, this has got, um, oh yeah, other things I should say, um, uh, a big part of what we believe is that online, well, we used to kind of see online, the internet, as it's kind of like over here, and it kind of like was, and you needed a laptop or a computer, and it was the internet's going to save the day, mass participation for the win, democracy would be fine, and I don't think that is actually correct, but also what, what we've obviously seen with our lives is internet's become far more mobile, and the way that this technology has, uh, reflects that. So um, a lot of uh, this technology is often used as, as, a, as a focus for an offline deliberative event. And people can kind of take it through it. And it becomes like an additional kind of teaching tool. And so this was, there was a lot of public meetings. But it was like, it's still, we're using this tool. It's just we're coming together to kind of talk about it. And people can be facilitated through it and things like that. So pretty cool. And this one surprised me in that, well, like a lot of these things, just the public really like them. So I was, I was a bit nervy about this, like, is this a good thing the police are doing this? Like, what, have we sold them? And they went bananas. <clears throat> Absolutely bananas, to the extent that the guy, Gareth, who was running it, was, was told by his wife to stop checking his phone in the evening, because he's just in the back end on the dashboard, like, watching him come in. He got really addicted to it. So that's the other great thing about some of these deliberative approaches, particularly prioritisation, you know, with points. They just, people love them, more than the budget ones. Maybe it's because they're less depressing, I don't know. And again, the, the average page times are, are pretty outrageous. Liverpool was about 10 minutes. That one was about 10 minutes as well. Um, so yeah, and that, I suppose also, what, I don't know if I've mentioned this or not. I feel like I've said quite a few words. But um, one of the great things is, well, you see it with libraries, but how much people's uh, opinions do change, like any kind of uh, good deliberative process. Anyway, I think I've been into that enough. So next way you can use this kind of thing is around tax. And that is... Another kind of complicated field, another emotive field, all the rest of it. And this is not something we do so much in the UK or Australia or New Zealand, although we've done a few. This is primarily something we built for work in North America. And actually, with this one here that we've got up on the screen, this is uh, one that we've been working with. I know these slides seem a bit dull. It's kind of the underlying stuff that matters. But this is from a project that we've been doing with uh, Austin, Texas. And, um, you know, without wishing to be too, much, too lazy and cliche about it, I think Texans care about tax more than we do, right? And so, actually, if you're going to do these kind of processes, and this is still just like a budget consultation, as you would call it, then actually, how do you make it like situationally correct? So, and by situationally correct, the two things I'm talking about there is, one, the way that local government is funded is very different, so that it's not reliant on a central government funding um, grant. It is largely reliant on property tax. And actually, weirdly, Austin owns everything. They own like the airport, they're obviously in charge of like police, golf courses, it's weird, like it's difficult, like, it's not weird, sorry. No actually, I'll keep Austin weird. It is weird, there we go, sorry. Anyway, what am I talking about? Yes, yeah, so, so they approached us and you know, they've seen the simulator and they're kind of interested in doing something and that's all good. And a lot of what I do is then turn, we'd like to do something into something useful and usable and, and everything else. So this is one of the first projects we did around this and prior to this slider base page or this budgeting page, uh, there's an additional input page and you're asked to put in your property value. Um, if you don't know your property value, you probably put in a default median property value, so you don't have to worry about that. And then we put in their own tax algorithm, which then powers the bill. And so at the top of this here, you can see your bill. And really, even though it's still kind of the same trade-off scenario, there's that nuanced difference is now saying how much are you prepared to pay for the services you want to receive, you know? So Liverpool was like, how can we make this the least worst kind of way of doing it? But you're the budget director. With the police service in all nine, and most of these point ones, it's about your preferences, but within the same methodology. And this one here, as I said, is about, it's really about you. What do you want, you private individual Texan, you? So uh, you can see here, and it's the same thing. You move them and you say, oh, actually, if I'm prepared to pay a few cents more, I'm going to get better aquatics programs or other strange American words, you know, or you can just be libertarian and cut a lot, you know, and say that's kind of like the last way. And so all three of those are kind of like, as I said, different ways. You can essentially use the same basic principles and approach in lots of different contexts to really genuinely uh, involve people in decision making. So 
To summarize uh, things that we've hopefully learned is, Delib is a digital democracy company based in the greatest city in England, Bristol. Uh, and that really, yeah, so our, our key work is to change culture, to be there in the long term, to tediously subvert those unelected officials who don't feel so inclined to be representative of, of the people they're accountable to. And that actually, once you get the conditions in place, you can start working on more interesting, targeted, and ultimately, you know, quite specific methodologies um, to, to get people involved appropriately. Um, that is probably quite enough. I feel like I've been talking for a while, so... Anyway, thanks for listening to me lecture you. It's very much appreciated. It's super interesting thanks. and really thorough, so that's quite useful because there's not much time for questions. Oh, thorough. But okay, there good. will be a few minutes for questions if anyone has any. Right, from I'm not sure that we have any on the well, There's 200 screen. people here, right? So. There are 200 people. I'll try and get around you all. Um, I'll go with you first then. Uh, my own question. Um, what about really complex things like Brexit? Yeah, great question. Um, did the mic pick that up? Okay. Yeah, yeah, cool. Damn, that's a pity. <laughs> so what about really complex things like Brexit? It's a really, really good question. So the biggest blocker to delib, say, maybe applying this to Brexit, for example, is getting someone within a government organisation to want to do it. Say, actually, yeah, I'd love to just apply this to, I don't know, a trade agreement or, or you know, whatever. But are the Department of International Trade going to be up for it? Are they going to ask us? Do they know we exist? Probably not. So actually, one of the biggest blockers to our work is finding those people who want to do it. Because even though what we try to do is subvert processes and organisations, you know, quietly, it's pretty obvious that actually if you do something like this, you are opening up your organisation, you're certainly opening up that decision. So that involves, you know, humility. I'll leave it at that. That involves humility. Um, but we are working on an incredible range of Brexit-related changes the other thing as well is obviously Brexit is multifaceted in the extreme and quite disparate. So you could potentially do it about you know, a funding source related to, I don't know, what's Brexit fishing? I don't know what people are angry about, right? But actually, no, it's really difficult to apply it to such a large, large model. And then you've got all the things around the fact that, you know, even the departments themselves are like 8 million silos, quite apart from, you know, Whitehall is another 8 million silos. So that's a really depressing answer. But yeah, the short answer is we'd like to but it would be extremely difficult and the government would have to be humble enough to be up for it. And my experience, new administrations are up for this stuff. People in power, more than about 20 minutes, aren't. So like Nick Clegg, do you anyone remember Nick Clegg? <laughs> that, is, that is a joke, yeah, yeah. Thanks for laughing, that's good of you. Anyway, so yeah, what am I talking about? Yeah, so with Nick Clegg, prior to him being a part of the coalition and everyone hating him and all the rest of it, he was massive on Facebook. Does anyone remember that? He's just gone to work for Facebook. I hadn't made that connection. Anyway, he used to be big, in power, boom, dead. When they first came in, we did a project called uh, Spending Challenge with essentially the Treasury, George Osborne, again, before, you know, we hated them. And uh, we did another one called Your Freedom, which was a Nick Clegg thing. Um, and they were both got about 100,000 ideas, huge national crowdsourcing things. The Spending Challenge one identified 500 million quid in savings that were made. It was cool. And then, you know, I don't know what happened, whether it was yeah, student fees or whatever the first thing was, or the first bit of austerity, or the closing of the Olympic Games, whenever in booed George Osmond, whatever. There was all those things. But, yeah, it's that weird reflex. At the start, they'll do so much stuff, and we might be involved, but at this point, you'll be lucky as well. So, anyway, sorry, that's a really bizarre answer. Um, Thanks. Yeah. Uh, I've got another question. Anyone else Jeff. dare ask? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'm interested in your thoughts on what happens to the outputs once you've used... Uh, yeah, yeah. And um, particularly where um, it might be appropriate to, if not disregard, to make a policy decision that goes against public opinion. So you mentioned the landmines. Um, yeah, yeah, quite. Why not would be the, the short, short question. Yeah, too. yeah. So actually, so this is a, it's a really good question and possibly not... Well, anyway, um, who knows? So one, one of the things with what we do is, particularly in this role now, is we kind of act as a critical friend that you're quite, you can potentially ignore. So a lot of what we do is provide technology so that subtly it changes it over time. But it doesn't necessarily mean we can directly influence the behavior on those platforms, because they are tools for them to use. They add the content. They've got you know, content management systems, all the rest of it. So, um, so in terms of if, I, you know, if someone buys citizen space, our main platform, then um, they might be buying it because it makes their lives better or more efficient, or their boss will like them, or whatever, the kind of usual quite human reasons. Um, and then what we can do is build into that technology 
working practices, even through like the UX and the, and the UI and stuff, that basically structure it better, thereby making the process better. So it's things like at the start of every citizen space consultation, there's a field they need to fill out that says why we are consulting. And that is there because no one explains why you should give up your time, how much of the decision you can add, anything at all. It just goes, we're consulting. It's a lot of them feel a bit like we're consulting. If you must, here's a way of doing it, right? And so that technology becomes a vehicle for opening up that kind of stuff. And then we also build um, outcome feedback tools and indeed response publishing tools. So the former to say the outcomes and what we've done with your response and so on to hopefully make that a bit more open and the response publishing to demonstrate well encourage transparency or indeed demonstrate transparency but actually that's about as far as we can kind of go and it's even true with the deliberative ones we can't persuade them or cajole them to kind of like using this stuff and what probably the biggest single issue with this field and in terms of our reach is like how seriously people take this data and then all the practical concerns have they consulted say late but actually, you can't bloody change anything anyway, right? And so, yeah, you do see direct outcomes from, our, from the stuff we do across everything. But actually, we can't influence it. And frankly, sometimes this stuff is used as an engagement piece, right? And I hate engagement, that idea that please talk about a change we're making for no apparent reason, we'll never speak to you again. So, yeah, it's, it's tricky to demonstrate that outcome. There is a formal process. They have to summarise the responses. They have to report back. But actually, how do you get people to you know, really use that data? One way is by using this deliberative approach so that the data you get is useful. And I find the more, uh, sorry, the better quality the feedback teams tend to receive, the more they tend to use it and the bigger the change that has. But yeah, it's probably the biggest single issue with what we do. You know, it's the aspect, it's the final part of the policy cycle, if you will, that we can't control. Other things we've tried to do is develop and explain and position Dialog, which is our productized crowdsourcing tool, um, as an early stage, uh, like call for evidence approach um, at Central Gov, so that you can, when you're at the kind of more blank piece of paper, you can listen to people, feed that into initial option, then go to formal consultation and things like that. And the simulator could also be used initially. But then, you know, that again goes back to if you start that early and you're really open, you have to be humble, you have to do stuff with it. And that's, that's that cultural wall you can hit into. Sorry, I know that's a really not a helpful answer, but like, like there's no, there's not of like a magic answer. It's like it's just bloody difficult. But again, tediously subvert for the long term, and we'll get at that as well eventually, probably, or we won't, and it will be a wasted life's work, right? But you know, who knows? Um, anyone else dare ask a question? No. That's probably, that's, that's, okay. that's right. for the best, I think. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Ben. That was, that was no, great. No, don't be daft. Um, next week, we have uh, a lecture on personal data portability and impacts on the UK economy. Um, so we'll hope to see you then. Cool. Thank you so much. <laughs> You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.